Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpca.org. That's gpca.org. Today we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 7. You can find this on page 842 in the Blue Pew Bibles and 1001 in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, As you turn there, just a couple of reminders. One of the things that uh, I would challenge you to think about this year is these invitation cards. These are great opportunities to share the gospel, even subtly, just by handing these out, inviting people to come to church, reminding them that faith is important. Figure out some kind of goal where you give out two of these a month or one of these a week or four a week, something like that, so that you're constantly in the idea and the mode of inviting people to church. After all, if the gospel is our eternal hope, there's no greater place for them to be than to hear that gospel regularly. We have these in the back. We have them at the communications corner. I would encourage you to take some and be willing to hand those out. Also, I want to remind you that we have a congregational meeting on the 22nd of this month, That's two weeks from now. Uh, We're going to just kind of uh, update you on what's going on, how the budget's going, things like that. But we're also going to take some time, and we're going to do leadership nominations. And what we're going to do here is we're going to hand out ballots, and you're going to write down people that you believe would be leaders. The beautiful thing about the Presbyterian system of government is we take Numbers 11, Acts 15, and various other places in Scripture, and we look at those and we say, leaders come from within. God is raising up men to lead this church. And so on the 22nd, we're going to nominate people. And as you think about your nominations, I want to remind you that the office of deacon is one of sympathy and service, one that looks out for the people, one that cares for the needy as well as the physical needs of the building. And the office of elder is one of shepherding and spiritual care. So I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks to be praying for who you want to nominate. You may get to a place where there's nobody that you feel is ready at this time, and that's okay. But pray and watch. Are there men who are already doing these things, who are already pouring into others, who are already serving in the ways that Scripture calls us? In my Friday email, I reminded you of where we can find in Scripture the biblical requirements for those. And so as we approach that meeting, I would encourage you to be praying and to be thinking about men who could be nominated for leaders. When people are nominated, we'll spend the next year training, and and so you can be praying through that process as well. But as we approach that congregational meeting, I just want you to take time and look around the congregation, see if there are some who are already serving in capacities like a deacon or like an elder, and nominate them that we might train them to be our next leaders. Once you've turned to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 30, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 30. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, 
holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you should have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters, enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetous, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he rose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to, the, to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we study this word, that you would help us to comprehend in our minds what Mark is teaching us through this word, that you would help us to hide the truths of the gospel and what Jesus is saying in our hearts, and that we would work out with our hands the very things that you have taught us. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, well, new year, let's get back into our habits. Context is... Yes, look at that. Anytime we're going to read the scriptures, we need to first understand the context so that we can fully understand the scriptures and get a better understanding for what's going on. We are studying the book of Mark, which is the shortest synoptic gospel. It's a story of Christ. 
his life, and his message. It's written by John Mark from Peter's account. It's written to Gentile Christians like Roman soldiers, people who had no Jewish background, no Jewish history, wouldn't have understood the the traditions and things like that. The Gospel of Matthew, by the way, is written more towards that bent. We see some key themes throughout Mark, and we've seen some of these so far. We see the sonship of Christ, that he is the Son of God. We see the authority of Christ. He not only teaches with authority, but that authority is guaranteed and shown through the way that uh, he is able to cast out demons and heal and calm the weather. And we see that we are called to follow Christ. He is calling us into his presence. Also, we have been using the imagery of kintsugi pottery. That's that uh, broken pottery that is then mended back together with gold in between. And that's a visual reminder to us of what the gospel is. We are broken people. We're broken by our sin. And yet, because of Christ, because of the gospel, we are healed and brought back together such that now we are even more beautiful than we could have been by ourselves. The beauty of the gospel is that it speaks to our brokenness. We are sinners who cannot save ourselves. We say that, but how often do we reflect on that? How often do we reflect on the fact that we do evil? Even though we don't want to, we still do evil. There's nothing we can do to make that up. And if that was the end of the story, if God didn't send anything, then we would be doomed for all the sin that we committed. But as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy. But God. But God means that even though we were sinners who cannot save ourselves and are destitute on our own power, God sends Jesus to do what we couldn't do, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve. Still, to this day, this isn't a death that used to happen. This is a death that we, everyone in here, deserves. Jesus died on our behalf. He rose again from the grave and is seated at God's right hand. And through faith in what Jesus has done, we can become sons and daughters of the King. We can be healed of our sin. We will still sin. We will not be perfect. But the gospel will make us whole enough to be able to bring that message of good news. And so in Mark, we've been looking at who Jesus is and what his message is. And so we're going to continue that today by looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 30. But before we do that, I just kind of want to set the stage a little bit for what we've already read. Did you know that it is illegal to wear a suit of armor in the British Parliament. Did you know that it is illegal to sleep in a cheese factory in South Dakota? In case you were tempted. Did you know that it is illegal to wear camouflage in much of the Caribbean? Be careful when you go on a cruise. Did you know that it is illegal for a donkey to sleep inside a bathtub in Arizona? Did you know that it is illegal to die inside the houses of British Parliament? I'm not sure how they do that punishment, but it's illegal. You're not allowed to do it. Did you know that it is a law in Wyoming that every building of value $100,000 and 
above has to have a piece of art hanging in it worth 1% of the total value of the building. If you like art, move to Wyoming. Did you know it is illegal to reincarnate without permission in China? Just saying. And finally, one of my favorites. Did you know it is illegal to wear a bulletproof vest in New Jersey while committing a crime? Now, not all of these laws make sense to us now. I'm sure they made sense when they were made. I'm sure that they're made with a reason. And some of these laws are reasonable. Some of them are not. There's many, many more, by the way. That is a really fun Google search. I would encourage you if you're looking for uh, a waste of time. Uh, but many of these laws also are no longer applicable or maybe can't even be brought forth. And, and this doesn't just go for laws, this also goes for guidelines. We have to be careful when we create guidelines and when we pass those guidelines down that we don't lose the intent of those guidelines or laws. And this is the problem that Christ is going to address today. There are guidelines that are being treated by laws and they have lost the intent that they were created for. So today in chapter 7, verses 1 through 30, we're going to see the difference between external purity and a renewed heart. That's the key here. External purity versus a renewed heart. So let's start by checking out external purity. Now, Christ addresses this in verses 1 through 23. You probably picked up on that while we were reading. This section is Christ showing how through man-made statutes, through man-made laws, through man-made traditions, through man-made guidelines, the Pharisees look good on the outside. They look good externally, but they completely miss the point of God's commands. And so as we look at 1 through 23, we can break this down into four sections. In verses 1 through 9, we see how Jesus contrasts human tradition with God's word. In verses 10 through 13, he gives a specific example of korban and what that means. In verses 14 through 23, we see this description of defilement, particularly 14 through 19 are defilement of the heart, and 20 through 23 are the elements of personal defilement. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 9. In verses 1 through 9, we see the contrast of human tradition versus God's word. And we start with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they are trying to accuse Jesus of breaking the Mosaic law. They're trying to say, you screwed up. And they're trying to do that because they want to discredit Jesus in front of all the people that are starting to follow him. They're trying to force Jesus to follow rules set by them. Not the Mosaic law, not things that are in Scripture, but they want Jesus to follow rules set by them because in their minds, the rules and traditions that they have are equal and on par with the Mosaic law. Hans Beyer, in his commentary on this section, says, Jesus stresses that an excessive and nearly exclusive focus on the ceremonial laws of purity at the expense of the purity of the inner being, the heart, contradicts the very essence and purpose of God's law. Because of the deep and persistent influence of that which defiles the heart, even the word of God is reinterpreted or virtually annulled for personal advantage or to satisfy human greed. 
Hans is saying, if we look at this and we look at what, what the, the, the Pharisees are doing, they are ignoring the word of God because of the things that defile the heart, reinterpreting it so that they can satisfy their own greed and so that they have personal advantage. Now, the reality is, while the Pharisees are trying to say to Jesus, you and your disciples are breaking the Mosaic law, they did not break the Mosaic law. Instead, they were disregarding the oral tradition of the elders, the extra rules set forth by men. Man-made traditions cannot purify the heart. That's Jesus' key point here. You have set forth these traditions, you've made these laws, you've made these things that you have to do, probably originally in an effort to help us be holy, but now you've made these traditions the law. And you've excluded the things that God says in his word, the things that can purify your heart, the things that can truly save you from sin. These traditions cannot purify your heart. And Jesus is showing everybody that's watching, especially the Pharisees and scribes, that the oral traditions only diminish the urgency of dealing with our sin. Let me say that again. Oral traditions only diminish the urgency of dealing with our sin. Now think about it. If I told you, if you do um, 10 push-ups and 100 jumping jacks a day, you're holy you're probably going to do 10 push-ups and 100 jumping jacks a day, and you're probably going to want other people to see it so that they know you're holy. Now, are you really holy if you do those things? No, you're still sinning. You're still doing things you shouldn't be doing. Your heart hasn't been changed. But by doing those external things, whatever they are, whether they're 10 push-ups or following the speed limit or whatever the case may be, you look holy. And the more we look holy and the more we feel holy because we've done the things that others say we should do, the less likely we are to actually address the sin that's in our hearts. And so Jesus says, Pharisees, you've set up these oral traditions to make yourselves look good. But what you've missed is the whole purpose of the Mosaic Law. And that's to deal with the urgency of our sin, the problem in our heart, the thing that is keeping us separated from Jesus, separated from God. When we perfectly follow outward rules that define us as good, then we are much less likely to actually deal with the sin in our hearts. Again, Han Beyer says this, a man either surrenders to God, as we see in Isaiah 1, and therefore to his word, the commandments of God, or he retains his own self at the center of religiosity, it's a hard word to say, and life, Mark 7, Mark 8, Mark 10, Mark 12, show examples of this, including his own self-made rules, the traditions of men. Look back with me at verse 9. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So what are they doing? They're not actually following what God has set forth. They're following the rules they made to look good as though they were doing what God has set forth. And in doing so, they've totally missed out on the point of God's law. 
That some of us have a hard time imagining this. We're just kind of like, we, we question tradition. Sometimes we do tradition. Sometimes we think it's preposterous. We all laughed at some of those laws, right? But they were all made for a reason. And as I thought about what does this look like today, I was reminded when I was in college, I was a part of a campus ministry. And one of their guidelines or rules that they set in order to maintain purity is that no one dated one-on-one. They always went on group dates because if you are in a group setting, you can get to know people with less pressure and there's less temptation because you're not one-on-one. This is a, a pretty good idea in terms of you know, college kids, craziness, hormones, all that kind of stuff. And so this would help them to stay holy. And in a group setting, you can encourage one another. And there's less pressure. That's a good idea. But that's not in the Bible. That's not something that if you don't do, you're sinning. And yet this good idea became so much a part of the fabric of this ministry that anytime somebody didn't go on a group date, most of the rest of that ministry judged them and condemned them because they treated that good idea like it was God's law. They were doing the very same thing that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about. The guideline was not a bad thing. But it's also not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is following God's law. These guidelines can help us do that, and some are good, not bad. But when we start to use these as God's law, when we start to use our guidelines, our traditions of men, and treat them as though when you break them you're sinning, we miss out on the point. We totally miss what the Bible is trying to do. The Bible is concerned with our heart. Our actions will come out of a holy heart, and when we only work on our actions without dealing with the sin in our heart, we fall short. So in verses 1 through 9, Jesus contrasts the word of God with human tradition. And in 10 through 13, he gets very specific For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. So Jesus is giving this specific example of korban. So korban is this Jewish tradition. Now, Jesus starts this section by affirming the Mosaic law. He affirms, he upholds Moses' authority that we are supposed to honor our father and mother, which includes taking care of them. So in Jewish, uh, in, in, uh, in Israel, what they would do was they would set aside a portion of all their money in order to take care of the parents, make sure that the parents were dealt with and, and, and could live comfortably. And in fact, most of the time, the parents lived with them. They set funds aside so that they could follow the commandment of honoring their father and mother and taking care of them. And then comes along this Jewish tradition, this tradition called Korban. It's a tradition, not a law. What Korban did was it said, all the money that you've set aside to take care of your parents, you can dedicate to God instead. And so now, instead of using that money to take care of your parents, you can say, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to give it to God. And the Jews said that when you did that, you no longer had to worry about your parents because you basically said, I'm giving not only the money that I set aside for them, but the care of them to the Lord so I don't have to worry about them anymore. 
And what often ended up happening was selfish Jewish kids would dedicate that money as korban so that they didn't have to care for their parents, so that they didn't have to pay for their parents, but then they wouldn't even give it to the temple. Their parents didn't get the benefit of it. The temple didn't get the benefit of it. They basically were able to wash their hands of one of the Ten Commandments. So as a consequence for Corban, people were no longer responsible for caring for their parents and often used those funds selfishly. So you have an argument with your parents at dinner, you know, because your parents are like, look, we experienced this. You're headed down a bad path. And you're like, I don't want to hear you. You're Corban. Now all of a sudden, all the money you set aside for them, all the care that you had for them, they're out. Somebody could say the word Corban, not have to take care of their parents anymore, and not even have to give that money away. Korban, this Jewish tradition, effectively nullified the Mosaic Law. It said, God says take care of your parents. God says to honor them and to care for them. But we're going to create a tradition over here that just says, I don't have to do that anymore because I don't want to, or because it's too hard, or because whatever reason I have, I don't want to do it anymore. And Christ points this out. He says, this tradition that you have created goes directly against the law of God. And then what does he say at the end? Many such things you do. So it's not just Corban. He's saying, you Pharisees have created so many traditions that get you out of the law of God so that your hearts aren't being cleansed and instead you're only looking good on the outside. You have done this not just with Corban, but with many things. And he's pointing out to them the pervasiveness of sin in their hearts, their own selfishness. And i got to be honest, we probably all have that feeling of selfishness to some point. So 1 through 9, he contrasts the human word or God's word in human tradition. In 10 through 13, he gives a specific example of Corban and how that happens. And now in 14 through 23, he's going to talk about defilement. And we start with 14 through 19 and how we defile our human heart. In 14 and 15, he emphasizes that the heart is wicked and needs to be cleansed. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Here we see that it's not food and food purity laws that make someone unclean, but what comes out of our hearts. What comes out of us is what defiles us. Not the food that goes in, but the things in our heart that come out of us. One of the central problems of impurity is that it resides in and proceeds from our hearts. We have sinful hearts. And so impurity comes from here, not the external things. Because remember, what did the Pharisees say to Jesus? Oh, how dare you? You didn't wash your hands before you did this. That's our law. You're breaking the law. And Jesus says, well, that's not, that's not the law of God. That's something that your heart has done so that you can outwardly act and feel holy. But the Bible actually says that we need to be holy and deal with the sin that is in our heart. Our sinful hearts affect all of our life, 
They reflect our, or they affect our relationship with God. They affect our relationship with other people. They reflect our, or re, excuse me, they affect our relationship with ourselves and they affect our relationship with creation. Our sinful hearts mess us up and we have to deal with those things, not these traditions. In verses 17 through 19, Christ explains more to his disciples, but they don't get it. Specifically in verse 19, Christ shows again that it's not out of our, or that it is out of our hearts that sin comes. And we can't deal with our hearts through ceremonial or oral traditions, even when they are helpful. It's not a bad idea to wash your hands before you eat. Let's just put that out there. That's not what Jesus is saying. When they say, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands before you ate, he's like, no, germs aren't real. You shouldn't wash your hands. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is they were trying to accuse him of sinning because he didn't wash his hands. And he's saying that it deals with your heart. The idea of washing your hands is a good idea. But not doing it is not a sin. So he's trying to specify the difference between dealing with our heart and these ceremonial oral traditions, even when they're helpful, and how they are not dealing with our heart. Therefore, since sin stems from the heart, food can't make us unclean. This is one of the things that the Pharisees often attacked Jesus with and his disciples moving forward. Once impurity is removed by Christ's sacrifice and through our constant sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ every day, the food laws lose their purpose. They were there to help us focus on the Lord. But once Christ's sacrifice happened, and once we started pursuing becoming more and more like Christ every day, we don't need those food purity laws anymore. Instead, we need to be focused on the purity of our hearts. And then in, in verses 20 through 23, Christ makes his chief point to the Pharisees. Impurity arises from a life of thoughts, relationships, and ethics that come from a sinful, self-centered self heart and evil thoughts. Impurity comes not from without, but from within. We have to deal with the sin in our hearts as opposed to the traditions of men. And he goes on to give specific examples. Look at this. We see six areas of evil deeds that are listed. Six areas of evil deeds, and then six immoral or effects of a moral character. First, six areas of evil deeds. Sexual immorality. This is the Greek word porneia. It means various form of sexual misdeeds. Two, theft. Three, murder. Four, adultery. Five, coveting, which literally means having more or harboring possessive greed, both sexually and materially. Six, wickedness, which is a broad spectrum of misleading and or exploitive deeds. Notice all six of these stem from an unclean heart and are connected to the second half of the Ten Commandments. The second half of the Ten Commandments deals with our heart and actions. And so Jesus is bringing that out. Again, talking about the law, showing that if we have an unclean heart, we're going to break the second half of the Ten Commandments in these ways, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and wickedness. And then he continues his list with six aspects of immoral character. Deceit, which is harmful deceptiveness. Sensuality, which is lust-filled lack of self-control. It's a good definition. Sensuality is lust-filled lack of self-control. Number three, envy and jealousy. 
Number four, slander. Number five, pride. Pride is showing or placing ourselves above one another, expressing arrogance or a sense of superiority. And number six, foolishness, which is unreasonableness. So here in 14 through 23, we see what defiles our heart and what that defilement looks like. That defilement comes from within and goes out. It's not an external thing like they had these human traditions to deal with. And because those human traditions made them look good on the outside, they wanted to reinforce those because if people believe that this is what they should be doing, then the Pharisees and the scribes are going to look great because they're following these. Whereas Jesus says, what's most important to God is what's in your heart and dealing with the sins in your heart. So in verses 1 through 23, we see this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And then Mark does this beautiful thing in 24 through 30. And he compares the external purity that the Pharisees are seeking and how wrong that is with a renewed heart. In 24 through 30, we see what a renewed heart looks like. Mark transitions to narratively create tension. The ones who should understand and trust in Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes who have read and studied the Bible, should be the ones that are getting this. But they keep failing in understanding. Now Mark is going to compare them to a Gentile. And you remember for Jews, Gentiles were dirty, were, were people that were not to be messed with. So Mark contrasts the Jews and the Gentiles, the Pharisees who should have gotten this with the Gentiles who shouldn't understand this at all. This is another example of Christ's authority being shown through his miracles. You remember that we say that anytime Christ teaches and he does a miracle, the focus is the teaching and the miracles just reflect his authority to do that teaching. So Christ travels to a Hellenistic area where resettled Jews know who he is, so he's not able to just kind of hide. And he's approached by a Gentile woman. Now this should remind us of Elijah in 1 Kings 17, verse 9. Same thing happens with Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He is approached by a Gentile woman. Mark sets this scene by reminding us of a few things. He reminds us, number one, that the woman is a Gentile. And number two, that she is a Gentile who needs desperate help. And then we get this shocking reply from Christ, one which I think most people are really upset is even in Scripture. This reply from Christ seems very guarded and offensive. Not just offensive, but racially judgmental. Jews used to call Gentiles dogs. And so Jesus, the one who is supposed to demonstrate love, has this interaction with this woman where he refers to her as a dog. Let's break down what he says. Uh, verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. So there are three comparisons that Jesus is making here in his response that again seems highly Offensive. Number one, the children are the Jewish people. He says the children receive their food first, the Jewish people. Number two, the bread is the message of Christ, the gospel that he's bringing, the thing that he's teaching, the thing that we're all supposed to get. And number three, the dogs are the Gentiles. 
And that's how the Jews referred to them. That's how they were thought of by many Jews. So let's reread verse 27 with these in mind. And he said to her, let the Jews be fed first, for it's not right to take the gospel from the Jews and give it to the Gentiles. Children, bread and dogs, Jews, the gospel, and the Gentiles. And now notice here too, he uses the word first. Let the gospel be given to the Jews first. It's not right to give it to the Gentiles first. Let's give it to the Jews first. Now that is a glimmer of hope in what appears to be a highly insensitive statement because the implication there is first we give the gospel to the Jews, but then it comes to the Gentiles. It would be a part of the Gentiles. Gentiles would become a part of God's family through Christ. So you have a woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon, and she comes to Jesus, this one who is supposed to be a great healer, one who can cast out demons, one who has stopped the wind and the waves. And she begs him for help. And he makes a statement that seems so offensive that she should be shocked with the things that he said. But how does she reply? How does she reply to Jesus? Look at verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus has seemingly offended her, has seemingly called her a dog. And she has a couple of options here with how she can respond. And she does what might be the most unlikely response. She says, yes, but even the Gentiles can receive the crumbs off the table, the crumbs of the gospel that the Jews don't hear. What a beautiful picture that is. She respectfully reiterates her request. She accepts and works with Christ's imagery of children, bread, and dogs and replies with humility, insight, and courageous persistence. Whereas Jesus was just telling the Pharisees what the truth was, he seems to be aggressively pushing it with this woman. The Pharisees didn't want to have anything to do with this kind message that Christ was bringing about how their hearts needed to be changed. But this woman who Jesus seemingly offends understands, replies in a way that shows humility, insight, and persistence. And Jesus responds in a ready way and a welcome way. And Jesus' ready and welcome response is a way to show us that the offensive language was a test to see if she believed. He meets her request with loving mercy and gracious deliverance. She begs for help. He talks about the gospel has to go first to the Jews and then can come to the Gentile. She admits this. She, uh, she says, yes, that's true. But even we can take the crumbs off the floor. Having passed this test, Jesus lovingly and mercilessly, merc mercifully delivers her daughter. This story stands in stark contrast to verses 1 through 23. 
the casting out of the demon affirms that Christ's teaching that we just saw in 1 through 23 and now see here that the Jews will receive the gospel is true. And not only that, but the Gentile woman stands in stark contrast to the religious leaders who would not listen to Christ. We have these two comparisons. The religious leaders who don't want to hear the gospel, who don't want to listen to the word, but instead are creating traditions that make them look good so they don't have to deal with the sin of their heart. And we have this Gentile woman who shouldn't have access to the gospel, according to many Jews, who begs Christ to cast out the demon and responds with persistence and humility to his challenge. And he lovingly grants her her wish. Today, Mark gives us contrasting stories. Pharisees and scribes trusting in external works for purity, while the Gentile woman showed a renewed heart that trusted, that trusted Christ. And so the question that this text causes us to ask ourselves is, am I trusting in rules and external actions to save me? Or do I trust in the work of Christ so that he might cleanse my heart? Do I trust in rules and external actions to save me? Or do I trust in the work of Christ to renew my heart? We can ask ourselves, am I seeking after my own sense of purity? Am I living under my own rules and regulations so that I look good to other people? Or am I seeking God, his righteousness, his glory, his purification of my heart so that I can live and grow under his word. We can tell by our actions. A renewed heart is transformed and purified. And when your heart is transformed and purified, this leads you to worship, which is praising God. This leads you to evangelism, which is sharing God. And this leads you to service, which is showing God. Are you living out of a transformed heart? Let's pray. Father, this text is a challenge because it's so easy for us to come up with rules and regulations that we can follow so that we feel good about ourselves. That's what we hear all the time. We hear that if we are just good enough, we'll be fine. And yet, Mark shows us through this text that it's really about a transformed heart, not the actions that we commit. So Father, we pray that you would transform our hearts, draw us away from traditions that we're trusting in, and draw us towards the gospel. Show us any places where we are living out of our own works and instead draw us into a transformed heart that seeks to worship you, that seeks to share you, and that seeks to serve in your name. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.